0: morning, I would like you to turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Ephesians, chapter 6. The text this morning is to be found in verses 10 to 13. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil, your word we, we first of all thank you for its truth and pray Lord that you would open our hearts to receive it to hear it as we ought to hear it to apply it to our lives that it would change us and transform us that it would encourage us that it would um, prompt us to action in a way that advances your kingdom in our own hearts and in this world in our families, among our our friends and neighbors. May we be a saver of Christ more and more, be more and more conformed to his image. Lord, I thank you for your regenerating Holy Spirit who indwells us and enables us to, to fulfill every command, so that your your commands are not burdensome. We thank you for Jesus Christ, who covers every sin and every failure, past, present, and future, with his justifying righteousness. And we thank you, Father, for bringing us, through Christ, to yourself for all eternity, that through Christ we have access by one Spirit into the Father. And I pray that we would experience that this morning. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this is the last time I'm going to be able to be with you guys for a while. Um, the fellow who feels in for me uh, will not be able to do so. So I thought this would be a good passage to uh, to uh, to to part with, at least for the moment. Um, I remember that when I first um, began coming to this church, which was when we were at Belton, over 20 years ago, one of the first sermons I preached was on this text. I still have the outline at home. Um, but this is a good this is a good uh, message to preach uh, pretty much any time. <clears throat> the The title of my sermon is "Stand." Comes from the word that comes, that, that Paul, uh, uses there in verse 11, stand against the wiles of the devil. And then twice in verse 13, that you may be able to withstand an evil day and having done all to stand. That's the overriding exhortation here in this passage. And I think it's also appropriate. I actually, I didn't actually plan this for this reason or, or think about it until just yesterday. But um, as I mentioned in the Bible study in a few days is Reformation Day. Which, uh, I appreciate God's work in moving in history in, in the Reformation. I appreciate men like Martin Luther and John Calvin and the, Ref- the Reformers. And one of them, one of the most, st- of course, this didn't happen on October 31st. October 31st is when Luther nailed the 95 thesis on the church door at Wittenberg. But, um, a few years later in 1521, Luther was, as a result of his stand, was there before the Roman, the Holy Roman Emperor, which, uh, as Voltaire said, was neither holy nor Roman nor an emperor. But um, there he was, uh, surrounded by himself alone, pretty much. Uh, And uh, they had had a, a table in front of him with his books on it, which had been banned and condemned. And they asked Martin Luther, they commanded Martin Luther to recant. And he said, unless I am convicted by scripture and plain reason, I will not accept the authority of popes and councils, for they have often contradicted themselves. My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. Here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. Amen. Martin Luther stood. He stood in the face of incredible opposition. And as a result of his stand, the Reformation happened under God, of course. Um, now, I, I, a lot, a lot of, we, 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 uh, point to the, the beginning of the Reformation as October 31st, 1517, 501 years ago. But, you know, if Martin Luther had made a stand in 1521, 1517 probably would not have had very much significance. And God calls on you this morning to stand. As the Apostle Paul was ending this epistle to the Ephesians, he called upon them to stand. And through the years the Holy Spirit still speaks, stand against the wiles of the devil. And having done all, stand Of course, Paul goes on in verses 14 to 17 to talk about the armor of God, to describe the armor of God. He calls us in verse 11 to put on the whole armor of God. He describes what it is in verses 14 to 17. So there's this military metaphor that pervades this passage. And the idea, of course, in first century warfare is you have these phalanxes of soldiers who stood side by side, row upon row, with shields interlocked and spears pointing through, Marching towards each other in combat. And to win the battle, you had to stand. If you fell, if, if you fell, you, you opened up a gap in the line that the enemy could um, then uh, use for their advantage. Uh, so you needed to stand. You needed to stand for the sake of yourself, for the sake of your fellow soldiers, and for the sake of the cause for which you were fighting. Now, the Bible talks about standing all over the place Um, in Scripture. This this idea is used over and over again. In Romans chapter 5 and verse 2, Paul talks about the grace of God wherein we stand. We stand in grace. In 1 Corinthians 16 and 13, the Apostle Paul, ending also this letter to the Corinthians, issues the following exhortation. Watch ye stand fast in the faith act like men be strong stand fast in the faith we are to stand in faith in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 in verse 15 the apostle paul writes therefore brethren stand fast and hold the traditions which you have been taught whether by word or our epistle. We are to stand fast in faith, we are to stand fast in the faith, in the traditions of the apostles, holding fast to the doctrine of the Word of God. And then, of course, you, you can't talk about staying without thinking of 1 Corinthians 10:12, can you? But the Apostle Paul says, Let the one who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. That is the danger. The danger is falling. And that context is falling into sin, like the Israelites who fell into these sins to grumble against God, to commit immorality, and so on, to fall. And Paul says, you know, you may be Christians, you may, you may call yourself a follower of Christ, you may have all these privileges, but the one who thinks he stands, take heed lest he fall. And you know, I, I I see in these this this exhortation here this morning a word for two types of people. This is a word for those who have become complacent in the faith, for those who are have become careless in the faith, who don't realize that there is a battle going on, and that they are part of the battle, whether they realize it or not if you have become complacent, if you are not taking unto yourself the whole armor of God, this message is for you. But this message is also for someone else. This, if you are discouraged this morning, if you are if you are feeling weary in the battle, then this message is also for you because along with the call to stand is this promise to be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. That we do not wage this warfare on our own, but we wage it in the power of Christ. So we are to stand. We are at war. There is a hardness that uh, is involved in the life of the Christian. Paul calls Timothy, again using this military metaphor, um, to be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. He goes on to say, to endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No man that wareth entangles himself in the affairs of this life that he may please him, who have chosen him to be a soldier? Endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Matthew. I, so, I, throughout throughout the New Testament, there is this military metaphor that's used. Paul uses it. Paul uses it of himself when he says that just a few chapters later in Second Timothy chapter four, I have fought a good fight. And I think the Scriptures use this imagery for a reason. Matthew Henry said. And commenting on uh, Matthew 7, uh, that we are not um, in heaven so soon as we are got through the door. That there is, a, there is a narrow door, there is a straight gate, but past the straight gate is a narrow way. Now, the end thereof is eternal life, but the way between the gate and, and, and glory is sometimes very difficult. And the apostles warned people, they, they didn't want to, uh, and Jesus warned people, Right? That to follow Christ does not mean that your life is going to be easy. That Jesus used the imagery of taking up your cross and following Him. And of course, in our day, we see people wearing crosses around their neck. But when, in the first century, when, when someone said cross, they didn't think about jewelry. They thought about that guy they just walked, they just watched carrying this, these pieces of wood on his back. And he was on a one-way trip. He wasn't coming back. Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me. The apostles tell the churches in Acts 14.22 that we must, through much tribulation, enter the kingdom of heaven. So we are at war. We are to endure hardness as good soldiers of Jesus Christ. We are not in heaven yet. So we are called as soldiers to stand. Now, to uh, encourage you in this, I want to say two things about this exhortation. Number one, you must stand. And number two, you can stand. Those are my two points. So first of all, you must stand. You must stand, first of all, because of what is at stake. Again, to not stand is to fall. Now, before I I say anything else, let me just make something very clear. I am a firm believer in the preservation and perseverance of the saints. That is, I believe God preserves his people. They persevere in holiness through the preserving hand of God. We are kept by faith through the power of God into salvation, ready to be revealed for the last time. God keeps his people. He keeps them through faith and in faith. And the power of God is underneath it all. No one can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. That we are kept by God the Father, we are kept by God the Son, and there is no one who can uh, come at us except through Him, and no one can get through God. So the saints are secure. There's no doubt about that. But you know, when the Bible recognizes the reality of a false faith, you know, when a lot of people talk about losing your salvation, what they don't reckon with, is they, they don't reckon with this reality of a false faith in that you can say you're a Christian. You can say you're a follower of Christ and it's just a bunch of hocus-pocus. It's phony baloney. There's this very interesting um, um, verse in John chapter 2 when Jesus is there at the Passover, the temple, and he's performed these miracles. He's, he's healed these people. And it says many people believed on him when they saw the works that he did. But Jesus did not entrust himself to them because he knew it was in the heart of man. Now that word um, commit in the King James, he did not commit himself to them. That word commit there is the same word believe. Many people believed on him. So that verse is literally saying that people believed on Christ, but he didn't believe in them. And the reason why he didn't believe in them is because their faith was fake. The Bible recognizes that reality. The the clearest example of this is James chapter 2, isn't it? where the Apostle talks about a devil's faith. And certainly a devil's faith never did anyone any good. Um, it's, it's, it's not. This is a faith not of someone who has been genuine, genuinely born again and regenerated, but this is a faith of someone who for whatever reason, um, worldly motives, the desire to be in heaven when they die or whatever, um, professes the name of Christ and then falls away. The Bible addresses... Um, the church recognizing that there are people of both sorts in the church. There are people who are genuinely born again, and there are people who only appear to be um, genuinely Christians. Now, John said this in John, First John 2.19. He talks about people who apostatized. And it's very interesting the way he talks about it, because he doesn't say they lost their faith. He doesn't say they lost their salvation, which is impossible. What he does say is they went out from us. Why? Because they were not of us. In other words, they were not ever genuinely Christians to begin with. And John goes on to say, if they had been of us, what? They would no doubt have continued with us. In other words, the the evidence of being in the family of God is persevering. Now, that perseverance does not secure salvation, but it is the evidence of it as fruit on a tree. The fruit doesn't make the tree a fruit tree. The tree makes the fruit. And if you are a tree in God's orchard, you're going to produce fruit, and that fruit is one of the fruits of that is perseverance in the faith. So when I say because of what's at stake, I don't. I want to make it very clear. I do not believe that someone who is genuinely born again, the elect of God, can ever lose their salvation. That's not true. But I will say this: that you can be a Christian. You, you, you can call yourself a Christian and not really be one. And to fall in that sense is eternally dangerous. But even if you are elect and chosen of God and God's going to preserve you, um, there is still a lot at stake here. Your your, your spiritual life is at stake. Your witness is at stake. Um, I think about David, King David, when he sinned, right? Right? This man of God, a man after God's own heart. Wouldn't you like God to say that about you? A man after God's own heart. Yet David sinned and he sinned mightily. And when he sinned, um, some pretty bad things happened to him, didn't they? And what's interesting is that um, David confesses his sin, he owns up to his sin, and God forgives him. But God does not take away the consequences of his sin. And a lot of people get the impression that, okay, I've sinned. I've I've made my peace with God. Now the consequences need to be over. That's not what happened to David. So listen to what it says here in 2nd Samuel 2, sorry, 12 in verse 13. This is right after um the prophet Nathan is confronted David and David says to Nathan, "I have sinned against the Lord." And that's a genuine that's a genuine response of confession. We you can read Psalm 51 to get Fill out what David is saying right there. I have uh, sitting against the Lord. And Nathan said unto David, The Lord hath also put away thy sin, thou shalt not die. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. But that's not the end of the story. The saints will be preserved, right? You are forgiven. You shall not die. But there are consequences that go on with sin. And so the prophet says, How be it? Because by this deed thou hast given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme the child also that is born unto thee shall surely die. And my friends, that was only the beginning. He goes on to talk about, well, actually in verse 11, he talks about one of the other consequences. And when you read the rest of David's life from this point out, it's actually a a series of tragedies. David's life up to that point was, was like one victory after another. But after that, it was just one tragedy after another. His sons were at each other's throats, trying to kill each other, trying to kill him, trying to overthrow the kingdom. And... It's, it's just extremely sad. That does not negate the reality that David was a man after God's own heart, that God loved him, and that David is in heaven with his saints right now. But David endured unimaginable calamity because of his choices that he made. And his, so his, his spiritual life was damaged and his witness was damaged, and it's very interesting, um, his sin not only affected himself, it not only affected Bathsheba, she lost the child just as much as David did. She lost her husband because of David's sin. Um, it also affected the cause of Christ, right? You have, because of the sin, given great occasion to the enemies of order to blaspheme. Do you know what Paul tells the Jews in Romans 2? He says these Jews who loved God's law, who knew God's law from beginning to end, these students of Scripture, these walking dictionaries of Bible knowledge, thou that makest thy boast of the law, Romans 2.23, thou that makest thy boast of the law through breaking the law dishonorest thou God. For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles through you as it is written. We can, through our sins, not only damage ourselves, we can not only damage those around us, we can damage the cause of Christ and His name in this world. And certainly we have many, many examples of that as well. So a lot, of this, a lot is at stake here. Your own walk with Christ is at stake here. Your fellowship with God is at stake here. The blessing of God upon your life is at stake here. God is not going to bless one of His children who are living in sin. He's just not going to do it. God is too loving a father. He disciplines us. Isn't that what the Bible says? Hebrews 12. He disciplines us for the sake of holiness. If you are walking out of the way, God's going to bring you back, even if it's a very painful path to get you there. My friends, listen. It is just, uh, um, it is futile to fight against God. And it's, but, but it's not only your own self, it's the people around you. you know, sometimes we get this idea that my sin only affects myself. It's my choice, it's my deed, it's my action. It's not going to affect anybody else. But we've already seen with David that his actions affected the people closest to him. And when you're in a battle and you're locked shield to shield with people around you, you fall, like we've already said, you create a gap in the line that affects the people next to you. And when we sin, we affect the people around us. Even if we can't see immediately how it's going to happen, we're going to affect the people in our family. We're going to affect our brothers and sisters in Christ and the church. The Bible says that when Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians 12, right, he talks about this this image of the church as the body of Christ. When one member suffers, what, what happens? They all suffer. And my friends, that that's not just physical suffering, right? That's spiritual suffering. When one member sins, we're all affected. So a lot is at stake here. When Paul says, I want you, brothers and sisters, to put on God's armor that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. And when the battle is all done, when the dust has, of the battle has settled, you are still there standing. You have kept the field. You have conquered the enemy. My friends, a lot is at stake here. Stand. Because of what is at stake. And then secondly, my friends, stand because of your enemy. Stand because of your enemy. Paul says in verse 12, well, let's back up to verse 11, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Let's just stop there for a moment. Who are you fighting? Who is the ultimate, um, enemy for the believer? It is It is not flesh and blood, right? He says that in verse 12. We do, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Now, that doesn't mean that people can't hurt you. It doesn't mean that people can't um, pose a spiritual threat to you. I mean, Jesus himself said in Matthew to beware of false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. Yes, people can, uh, can do all sorts of uh, evil and, and bad things to you my friends, the Bible makes it very clear that behind every spiritual obstacle, behind every spiritual threat that the believer faces, is not, ultimately is not flesh and blood, but is the devil. Now, I mean, you can see this most clearly in the cross, right? I mean, who is it that nailed Christ's hands to the cross and his feet to the cross? I mean, these were people, right? The Roman soldiers put him there. The Jews accused him um, to, to, to get him condemned by Pilate. I mean, the, the Jews and the Gentiles together, um, the Bible says, conspire to crucify the Prince of Life. So men were certainly involved there. But Jesus called that moment the hour of darkness, referring to um, the devil. It was his hour and the hour of darkness. Satan was certainly behind those events. And so the, the ultimate threat that you're facing are, are not fellow human beings. The ultimate threat is the devil. The wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Now that verse 12, those are just different ways of describing evil spirits, wicked spirits. And there he describes them as principalities, as powers. And the reason why he's using this type of language is to... Get across to you and I the reality that we are facing a formidable foe. These are powers. This is the devil that we are talking about here. He is powerful. These are world rulers. And they're crafting the wiles of the devil, the schemes of the devil. You know, think about this. The devil has had thousands of years to uh, improve his craft, and he was probably um, a lot smarter than you and I were to begin with, almost certainly. Um, and he's had thousands of years, so he's met he's met your kind before. He knows what you're like. He knows what your weaknesses are. He knows what threats are most likely to trip you up. He's crafty. And he's going to do whatever he can. And you know what his ultimate, his ultimate um, end is. His ultimate end is to overthrow your faith. That's his goal. I mean, think about what Jesus says to Peter, right? Luke, Luke twenty-two. Simon, Simon, Satan hath the desire to have thee that he might sift thee like like wheat. But I have prayed for thee that thy faith fail not. The devil was after the faith of Peter. You see this with the Book of Job. Yes, it was true that when Job's wealth was taken away, it was people that did it, right, or or natural disasters. Um, when Job's health was taken away, who was ultimately behind that? It was the devil. And why did the devil do that? The purpose of the devil was so that Job would, would curse God, would, would turn his back on God, was to destroy Job's faith. So listen, this is not some theological abstraction we're talking about here. Nor is this some remote possibility that you might be confronted with principalities and powers who want to destroy your faith. This is a reality, it is a present reality, and everyone in this room is going to face it. If you haven't faced it already, you will. This is is totally relevant to you and me. And you know, the thing about about the devil is that he's persistent. I mean... Paul talks about in verse 13, the evil day, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. Commentators wonder, what is he talking about the evil day? Is this something that's in the future? Um, is this something in the present? Well, I'll tell you what I think it means. I think it means any time the devil attacks you, that's the evil day. Now, he doesn't he doesn't necessarily attack all of us all the time, but my friends, he's going to attack you, and that's, that's the evil day, and you're called to stand when that happens. I think of our Lord Jesus Christ. After he's baptized, what happened to him? Feel the Holy Spirit, driven into the wilderness to, to what? To be tempted by the devil. And Luke says that at the end of that temptation, the devil left him for a time. He left him for a time. In other words, he's coming back. And think about this, okay? Jesus totally defeated the devil in the wilderness, right? He turned his tail and ran. But he came back. And I mean, this is almost mind-boggling. But if if the devil will not give up on the Son of God, what makes you think he's going to give up on you? He won't. So we are to be like Nehemiah and the builders of the wall who built with a sword in one hand and with a trowel in the other. We're to be constantly awake and aware and watchful and on guard in case the enemy might attack us at any time. I mean, how many battles have been won in history? Because the opposition just wasn't aware that they were faced with a threat. You know, this uh, in, the, in, the, in the book of Revelation, there's this church of Smyrna, right? Smyrna was a city that was built, well, one side was on the face of a sheer cliff. And so Smyrna and it's the, the city defenses only had defenses on the, the sides of the city that were not adjacent to the cliff because it was so, I mean, you think about it. This is in ancient times. They just didn't figure that anybody could attack the city from, a, from the cliff, right? Um, but guess what? It happened twice. Alexander the Great was one of the people who did that. He sent some soldiers scrambling up the, the wall. And they unlocked the city gates. That's all it took. Um, so beware, my friends, of your enemy. You must stand. This is, this is something that's relevant to every person in this room. You're called to stand. But then, then, you know, you can be sitting there, standing in line there in the battle. You're there in the, in the phalanxes, um, either on the front row, front lines or two or three rows back. But you hear the enemy banging their shields together, roaring, getting ready for the battle, and your knees begin to tremble and quake, and you're thinking, I'm not really sure I'm up for this. You know, there are some people that love battle. Winston Churchill said when he was uh, with the British cavalry there in India, Afghanistan, he said, you know, the first battle, when he felt that bullet whiz by his ear, he said, that was so exciting. He loved it. And there are people like that. They either pop as the bullet passes by. They love it. But that's not for everybody. Everybody's like that. And sometimes you're facing a battle and it's just overwhelming. You're not sure how in the world am I going to be able to endure this, to embrace the conflict that is upon me. this, This evil day, you have no choice. It's come upon you. The battle is here. You may be surrounded. There's no way out. The only way to advance is through the enemy. So what are you going to do? How are you going to stand? How can you have confidence? So you don't want to be, you don't want to lay your weapons down, because my friends, the devil does not take prisoners. The only option is, is to stand and fight. So I want to encourage you this morning that if you have embraced the blood of Jesus Christ as your only hope for heaven, you can. Stand. Now, the Bible makes this very clear. What does James say? In James chapter 4, in verse 7, that you are to submit to the Lord, you are to resist the devil, and he will what? He will flee from you. Isn't that amazing? I mean, people people talk about the devil like he's some um, mascot for some football team. That means the devil is a supernatural, powerful, wicked spirit who hates you and wants to kill you. He wants to destroy your faith. And he's infinitely more powerful than you will ever be. And yet the Bible says that you can resist him successfully. Peter tells us this in 1 Peter chapter 5, in verses 8 and 9, be sober, be vigilant. Because your adversary, your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walks about seeking whom he may devour, whom resists steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. You can resist him steadfast in the faith. He can be resisted. He will flee. And there's two reasons why. There's at least two reasons why. Number one, because my friends, God... Is the one who's equipped you and put you into his army. One of the astronauts who was uh, the first astronauts who was uh, in space said that as he was sitting in that space module, the thought occurred to him that everything in that space module was 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 all the materials were were. Uh, Were were we're bought from the lowest bidder. (laughs) Not a very comforting thought. But uh, my friends, the armor of God, think about that. This is not equipment from the lowest bidder. This is the armor of God, and he has equipped you, he has put you into his army. Think about what he's done. The Bible says that we are by nature the children of wrath, even as others. We are by nature dead, and trespasses and in sins, with a heart that is hostile to God and set against the things of God. But what did God do? He came and he spoke life into your life. He awakened you. He rose you from he raised you from the dead and regenerated you and made you alive. And then he put you into the body of Christ and he equipped you with spiritual gifts so that you can grow and mature and become more and more like Christ. And I so I can't think of Ephesians 2 and 4 without thinking of the vision that Ezekiel had there in the valley of vision there um Ezekiel 37 the valley of dry bones where Ezekiel sees these bones separated and scattered all over the place dried baked under the sun and God tells Ezekiel I'm going to create an army from those bones and he does He breathes life into them he puts flesh upon them and the very last verse of that section says, and there stood up an exceeding great army. God can do that. He can take dry bones and make them an army for himself. And so, you know, there, we have no power in our own selves, but we are equipped with the equipment of God. We have been raised from a spiritual death. We are blessed, Paul says in Ephesians 1, 3, we are blessed with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ. So that, that that phrase, high places, at the end of verse 12, that's the same phrase, heavenly places. The spiritual conflict takes place in the heavenly places, but we are blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. We're, we, so God has equipped you and he's given you the whole armor. He's not just fitted you out partially. We have the whole armor of God that is available to us. You know, some units go into battle Half equipped, under man. My friends, this is not the case with God's army. They are completely fitted out, the whole armor of God. And if you're not out there with all the armor of God, that's your own fault. Right? It's not God's fault. Take unto you, Paul says, the whole armor of God. So you can stand because God is the one who's equipping you. God is the one who's preparing you. And then, and then you can stand because you, my friends, are united to Christ and you enjoy access to the power of God. So verse 10 is so crucial here, and I think it's very important that Paul starts out this way. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. How is it that you are going to wrestle? You know, that's, that's another word, wrestle. There, there's, there's a, there's, there are Greek words for war and battle. That's not the word. Wrestle there is more reminiscent of the, the, the wrestling matches in the Olympics, and sometimes commentators have wondered, why did Paul use that word? Well, it's actually not hard to see, because in first century warfare, the only way you could win the battle was by getting grappling with your enemy hand-to-hand. It had to happen in hand-to-hand combat, so you had to actually wrestle with your enemy. You had to wrestle to the ground. But how are you going to do that, especially when the person you are in hand-to-hand combat with is the devil? My friend, it's the power of God. That makes that possible. So all throughout the book of Ephesians, Paul, has, Paul keeps reminding us of God's power. So for example, in Ephesians chapter 1, in verse 19, he's praying for the Ephesians. And he wants them to know three things. He wants them to know the hope that they have in Christ. He wants them to know the riches that they have in Christ. And then finally he says, I want you to know what is the exceeding greatness of his power to us who believe, according to the working of his mighty power, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places. In other words, the same power that was operative to raise Christ from the dead is the same power that is operative in each believer's life. And then Paul, in another prayer, in the very middle of the book, prays this in Ephesians 3, in verse 16, again praying that he, that is the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, Would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might by his spirit in the inner man. Now, notice how Paul says this according to the riches of his glory. You have the resources of the wealth of the glory of God at your disposal through Christ, and so you can be strengthened with might by his spirit the inner man. And so it's no wonder that he goes on to say at the end of this prayer in verse 20 that now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we can ask or think according to the power that worketh in us unto him be glory in the church by Jesus Christ throughout all ages world without end. Amen. So yes, it is true that in ourselves we are weak. Jesus says in John 15:5 without me you can do nothing. But Paul says, in Philippians 4:13, 2:13, do you remember what Paul says? 4:13, "I can do what? All things. all things. I can do all things." Now that, that seems very arrogant, right? Someone, someone says, "I can do all things. I can do everything, okay? Good for you. But Paul says, "I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, through Christ." Now, ultimately, the reason why we can defeat the hordes of Satan is because Jesus Christ has already defeated them. Listen to what Paul says in Colossians chapter 2, beginning in verse 13. Very reminiscent of the language of Ephesians, and you, being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has quickened together with him, he's made you alive together with Christ, having forgiven you all trespasses blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us which was contrary to us and took it out of the way nailing it to the cross and listen to this and having spoiled principalities and powers he made us show of them openly triumphing over them in it now that's in past tense for a reason this happened on the cross he is on the cross he spoiled principalities and powers. He triumphed over the devil. And so we are actually fighting a defeated enemy. There's no no question about the issue of the war, is there? The devil is defeated. We are delivered from the one who had the power of death. That is the devil. So we no longer have to live in fear of death. Christ has conquered him. And so you you can defeat him because you can be strong, not in your own strength, not in your own power, not in your own wisdom, but in the strength that is in Christ. And we are, united, we are united to him. If someone were to ask me, what is the theme of the book of Ephesians? I would say the theme of the book of Ephesians is union with Christ. And you see this in chapter one especially, right? Because that phrase in Christ or in him is repeated over and over and over again. Every blessing we have is in Christ. We are united to him. And united to him, we have access to all of the 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 power of God to fight the devil. So I want you this morning to be encouraged. Now, this doesn't mean that you're not to do anything, right? You are to take and do the whole armor of God. This is not a let go and let God exhortation. There is something for you to do. Um, You have to take the armor of God. You have to put it on. You have to have um, your loins girded about with truth. And you have to have on the breastplate of righteousness. You have to shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace and to take the shield of faith to quench all the fire darts of the wicked. You have to take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. You are to stand. That's an exhortation to you. Stand. You are the one doing the wrestling. So yes, this is not a let go in that God exhortation. That's wrong. But neither is this an exhortation that says it's all up to you. You know, the, the biblical the biblical doctrine of sanctification is that every act of faith is an act in which I act and God acts simultaneously. And if I acted by myself, nothing would happen. But God acts in our acts. This is what Paul says in Philippians 2, 13, and 14, where he says, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. You work it out. But how are you going to work it out? Because it is God who works in you. In your working out your salvation, God is working in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. You act and God acts. Paul says in Romans chapter 8, and verse 13, when he talks about putting to death the deeds of the body, he says this, for if you live after the flesh, you shall die. But if you, if you, through the spirit, do mortify the deeds of the body, you shall live. You are to do the mortifying. You are to do the killing and the slaying. But the only way you can do that is through the spirit. So we are to live like Abraham. Yes, there's no power on our part. But God made a promise to Abraham. There he was. In Ur of the Chaldees, an older man, with a barren wife. And he says, Abraham, I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to fill with your descendants, and you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. That is an incredible promise. Here's what Paul says about that Romans 4. So I'll end with this. Abraham, who is the father of us all, as it is written, I have made thee a father of many nations. Romans 4.17 Before him whom he believed, even God, I love this description of God, who quickeneth the dead and calleth those things which be not as though they were. Who, Abraham, against hope, believed in hope, that he might become the father of many nations according to that which was spoken, so shall thy seed be. And being not weak in faith, He considered not his own body now dead when he was about a hundred years old, neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb. Everything in Abraham's life was saying this is not going to happen. But verse 20 says that he staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief but was strong in faith giving glory to God and being fully persuaded that what he had promised he was able also to perform. We need to be Like Abraham. Yes, God may be be calling us to do some pretty amazing things and some seemingly impossible things, but he's promised to meet us with his power. As we engage the enemy, we will be able to resist the devil and defeat him. So this morning, if you have let down your guard, if you're going through life as if spiritual things are not important, my friends, you need to be reminded this morning that you have an enemy who hates you, who wants to kill you. Who wants to overthrow your faith? And he is—he's at it. You will—you will be engaged in an evil day, if you haven't, it will happen, and that's true. Of every I, there's there's absolutely no doubt in my mind. Everyone in this room is going to have an evil day, maybe multiple evil days. You need to be able to stand. You need to wake up. If you're just coasting through life you're not reading your Bible, you're not praying, you're not seeking Christ, you need to wake up. Because the enemy is very much awake. And he wants to kill you. A sleeping soldier cannot fight. A sleeping soldier will not stand. You will fall. If you do not wake up right now, you need to stand. But then this, this word is also for those of you who have become weary. Maybe you are awake, and you feel like, I've been fighting so long against whatever it is. I don't feel like I can do it anymore. Maybe you don't even want to do it anymore. But my friends, the problem there is that you were looking to yourself like Peter when he got out on the water. He he took his eyes off of Christ, he started looking at the winds and the waves, and what happened? He sank. You need to put your eyes back on Christ. You need to be like Abraham, though God's called you some amazing thing or some hard thing. You need to stagger not at the promise of God through unbelief, but be strong in faith, giving glory to God, fully persuaded that what He's promised, He will perform. Be strong in the Lord and the power of His might. So do not be discouraged. God is with you. God is. Will help you. He will enable you. He will hold you up. Through Christ our Lord. Let us pray. Lord, it's easy to preach these things and sometimes just to preach them and not to hear them for myself. And so I want to begin as we close this morning just praying for myself, Lord, that I would hear and that I would stand. And that I would not become discouraged. Um but hold fast to Christ and be empowered. And I want to pray that for everyone in this room. Lord, if there's anyone here who has, who's, who's gone to sleep, who has um, been neglecting spiritual things, that you would awaken them and, and encourage them, Lord. That your grace is ready to meet them and to equip them and to empower them. so they have an enemy. Greater is he that is in us than he that is against us. And... Uh, I pray that for those who are weary and weak and discouraged, Lord, that you would encourage them, that you would help them even today feel your presence. Lord, you have promised. It's in your word. We want to claim it this morning. Your word says that we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us, that we, you call us to be strong in the Lord in the power of your might, not our own. And so as you call us to that, Lord, we know that you mean to do it. So, Lord, strengthen and encourage the brothers and sisters here this morning. And if there's anyone here, Lord, who has not embraced Christ as Lord and Savior, would you draw them to him? They would know what it means to be in Christ and connected to every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ, to be be chosen in him and to be adopted into his family and and to be redeemed um, and have the forgiveness of sins and to have an inheritance incorruptible um, that does not pass away. Lord, draw them, I pray, to yourself by the Holy Spirit, through Christ our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen.